Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name's John Ryan. I'm a visiting um, fellow at LSE Ideas, uh, for foreign policy think tank of London School of Economics, and I will chair and moderate the um, session tonight and the Q&A. And I'm concentrating very much on the Brexit issue at the moment. This hard Brexit, soft Brexit, no Brexit idea was about Came, came up with that about uh, eight uh, months ago, and we've come to this point now. And sort of simply speaking about those particular concepts, um, hard Brexit would mean that Britain would leave the customs union in the internal market, soft Brexit that we could get a free trade agreement, and more and more it might be a 5% or 10% probability for some people that there would be no Brexit. Uh, we will also explore what Brexit will mean for the relationship between the United Kingdom, Germany and the EU. Uh, preceding this event, uh, there was a workshop on Brexit today with German, UK and EU policymakers, and we talked about what would the uh, Brexit would mean for the city in terms of Euro clearing for th those of you who are interested in finance. Can we make an EU-UK uh, trade deal viable? We looked at the different models, and I'm sure we'll discuss more than these uh, in terms of the Canada model, the Norway model, the WTO, or indeed no deal whatsoever. Um, and we looked at the German view of uh, Brexit, and you can imagine that the German participants have been pretty much bemused by what they see as uh, economic self-harm, um, and what does Brexit mean uh, for the UK? And that was very much a British uh, panel. Um, I would like to thank Professor Michael Cox, Director of London School of Ideas, in supporting these two events. He's unable to be here tonight, so I'm going to take his place in chairing. And LSE has been privileged uh, to um, partner with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation, which has uh, taken a great interest in this subject and uh, has supported uh, some other initiatives that I've been involved in in terms of Capital Markets Union and multipolar um, uh, currencies. So I'd like to introduce uh, Hans Blomeyer, who's the director of the Conrad Adenauer Office in London, um, to actually introduce the speakers tonight. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome on behalf of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung to this evening debate about hard, soft and no Brexit. First of all, I would like to thank London School of Economics and LSE Ideas, Professor Michael Cox, which John already mentioned, and to you, John Ryan, for this cooperation with the workshop this afternoon and this, uh, and this evening discussion here at LSE. Uh, second, I would like to extend a very warm welcome to our speakers, which I will introduce in a moment. Just remember when we started planning this event, uh, John, in several sessions, uh, we thought and we assumed that late or mid-October would be an interesting time to do that, and indeed it is interesting times. Just uh, remembering that Prime Minister May is heading towards Brussels, we'll have a dinner tonight and the council meeting tomorrow, 
And at least in the British media, there's tons of expectations what might come out of that uh, dinner and the subsequent talks. Um, it is an important issue, but if you listen towards the European capitals, it is a issue, but not the issue of debate, and that already hints where difficulties lie. We are facing certainly one of the most challenging situations for the EU since its foundations, but um, we have to realize that expectations, perceptions, and priorities vary a lot and seem to be shifting and drifting apart, which is part of the problems in these negotiations. So there is, at least from our perspective, a need to talk and to listen on both sides carefully to each other's expectations, priorities, perceptions, starting with the question what the EU means to each of us, and there seems to be a certain variety about that uh, opinion to politicians and societies, and what a meaningful, realistic deal might look like for the UK and the EU. And on the long run, let's face it, if the UK decides to leave, there is the fundamental question what a European order post-Brexit would look like and where the EU, the UK, and other non-EU European countries will, uh, will place themselves and will cooperate in a wider European spectrum. These are a couple of questions which are on the table and which are important as far as I see it. So again, thank you very much for LSE for this opportunity. And now let me briefly introduce our speakers. Um, John Ryan, you introduced yourself already, so you are going to moderate uh, uh, this debate this evening. Thank you very much for taking, for taking that role. Second, Agata Gostinska, our British-Polish speaker here. That's part of our European reality. Thank you very much for being here as a research fellow from the Center for European Reform. Um, and I think you can say this is the leading think tank in the UK on European politics, which we have here. Um, when the Center for European Reform says something or publishes something that is taken serious, and that's also your work. So thank you very much for, for sharing uh, this debate here and for commenting later on the keynote speaker, which leads me to the keynote speaker, my dear friend David McAllister. It's a pleasure to have you here again in London member of the European Parliament, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and vice president of the European People's Party. It is, it is a privilege and an honor to have you here this evening. Your last name is quite revealing. You're holding a British and a German passport, which is quite unique, I think, on both sides of, uh, of the channel. And, but I have learned, and you have insisted in that uh, in the last occasions we met, you're particularly proud of your Scottish heritage, and you're putting very much emphasis on that, and you might explain us why that's the case. So thank you again very much for being here. The floor is yours, and we are very keen and very interested to listen to your comments this evening. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great honor and Pleasure for me to be here in London. Everything was said about my person. Perhaps I can just add that I'm a Christian Democrat from Germany, a long-lasting loyal supporter of my Chancellor and Party leader, Angela Merkel. So you will probably get a view of a German Christian Democrat on Brexit. When I talk to the British media, I'm always presented as a very close ally of Angela Merkel. 
I am a very close ally of Angela Merkel, but I don't speak for Angela Merkel. So please don't ask me what the Chancellor's position is on some of the details you're discussing in this country. But I would try and give you more a view how we see things in Brussels, in the European People's Party in general, and how we see things in the German Christian Democratic Union, also from a German position. We just heard from John Ryan the different scenarios, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, or perhaps even the still possible abandonment of Brexit. The potential outcomes of the UK's withdrawal from the European Union are as diverse and complex as the Brexit negotiations themselves. And so are the terminologies used to describe the different scenarios. The EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, who's doing an excellent job, recently said in the European Parliament, when he was asked what soft and hard Brexit means, he gave a wonderful answer, I don't know what hard Brexit or soft Brexit means. And indeed, soft and hard are abstract and rather subjective terms. The path of Brexit will ultimately depend on the actual compromises struck between the UK and the European Union on the many detailed questions at stake. Now, some may find the outcome hard, others soft, and still others may not subscribe to any of these terms. I will nevertheless try to shed some light on the jungle of Brexit complexities and explain what the three potential scenarios, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, and no Brexit, could entail, including their respective benefits, risks, and probabilities. You all know the UK currently pursues a hard Brexit strategy as shown by the government's red lines in the Brexit negotiations. And these are four. Firstly, end of free movement. Secondly, complete control over UK laws. Thirdly, autonomy and trade agreements. And fourthly, the end of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. As irrational as it may seem for some, especially on the continent, the British decision not to seek membership alongside Norway and Iceland of the European Economic Area has obviously become a fact. The Prime Minister's objective is an agreement that allows British banks and businesses, quote, the freest possible trade in goods and services, the maximum freedom to trade and operate, and the greatest possible access, unquote, to the EU's large market. Yet what seems eminently rational to the UK government here seems less so when viewed from continental mainland. The European Union has made very clear that the four freedoms of the internal market, people, goods, capital and services, are indivisible. Hence, the end of the free movement of people will also end the free flow of goods, capital and services. A third country cannot have better rights than a member state. One cannot leave a club and retain all the benefits, and that means a lot in practice. In practical terms, the hard Brexit towards which Prime Minister May is heading will prove disruptive for people and businesses on both sides of the channel. Banks and financial institutions will likely lose their EU passports. That means the right to sell financial services across the EU. 
The flow of goods will be restricted by trade barriers and customs checks. Common research and future security cooperation are as much open questions as the terms of legal protection offered to EU citizens in the UK and vice versa. Yet the extent of disruption will largely depend on the degree of post-Brexit integration in EU structures. Yes, a possible solution could be a free trade deal with mutual recognition provisions and specific agreements on future cooperation. It would require the UK's recognition of a number of EU rules and regulations, but still fall far behind EU membership. For example, it is evident that no privileged British access to the EU's internal market will be possible post-Brexit unless a new regulatory system is put in place to replace the one Brexit will have destroyed. A new apparatus is needed to verify that British and EU27 trading, health and safety standards are equivalent and their rules of origin procedures sound. This applies even to trade in farm products after the UK has liberated itself from the shackles of a common agricultural policy. This applies also to trade in British-made cars whose manufacturing supply chains spread across continental Europe and beyond. Once outside the common fisheries policy, regulations will have to be agreed with the EU to define the notion of a British fish. Because the EU is the much larger and well-established market, these rules and many more besides will probably be EU rules first and British rules second. Because in most sectors, British business is the weaker player. And all these rules need to be operational before any new tariff rates and tariff quotas are applied to UK-EU trade. Free trade agreements are legally complex and politically fraught. This one will be no different. Just to remind us, the negotiations for a free trade agreement between Canada and the European Union began in 2009. Only this year, that means eight years later, CETA has finally been concluded. However, a comprehensive free trade agreement along with special provisions and agreements on future cooperation is probably still the best hard Brexit scenario we can realistically hope for. The worst case scenario, of course, by contrast, would be the so-called cliff edge Brexit, as I read in a German newspaper today, von der Klippe Kippen. The no-deal scenario, which will happen if the UK automatically leaves the EU at the end of the negotiation period on the 29th of March midnight in 2019, without any formal agreement between the two parties. We just heard it. This would make Britain a third country for the EU. Trade relations would be based on WTO rules, just like Botswana, Tanzania, or Bangladesh. This would mean tariffs of 2 to 3% on many industrial products, tariffs of 10% on cars, and tariffs between 20 and 40% on many agricultural products. While a comprehensive trade deal is about damage limitation, a cliff-edge Brexit would mean damage multiplication as every party would end up losing in this scenario. This is why I strongly disagree with statements saying that no deal is better than a bad deal. Any deal would be better than a no deal at all. 
Ladies and gentlemen, according to most definitions of a soft Brexit, Britain would remain in the single market and retain membership of the European Economic Area, either with or without a customs union agreement. The clear advantages for the UK would be regulatory harmony with the EU, tariff-free trade and access to the internal market, financial institutions would keep their EU passport and continue to sell their services across the EU. In turn, the UK would of course have to accept the free movement of labour, an important number of EU rules and regulations and the jurisdiction of the ECJ. While least disruptive and most advantageous for trade and business, the soft Brexit scenario would hardly satisfy Brexit hardliners who are calling every day for more control. Now, we all know the Prime Minister has ruled out a soft Brexit scenario by declaring, quote, we are not leaving the European Union only to give up control of immigration again, and we are not leaving only to return to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, unquote. Hence, neither the model Norway or Iceland, nor the Switzerland are likely options for the UK government as they require the free movement of people, financial contributions and acceptance of numerous EU rules in exchange for an access to our internal market. Compared to EU membership, a clear disadvantage of soft Brexit models for the UK is that it would still have to obey EU regulations in wide parts without much influence on them, yet in terms of economic benefits and frictionless trade, a soft Brexit would be far more advantageous than hard Brexit scenarios. Brexit means Brexit, according to the Prime Minister and many other British politicians. Yet in the referendum, Brexit voters couldn't choose a particular Brexit scenario. It is indeed debatable whether Leave voters had cast their votes the way they did if they knew it would mean exiting the internal market and customs union and ending the free movement of people, goods, capital and services. The fact that the Prime Minister wasn't that successful in securing a strong Brexit mandate in the national elections she called for in June is a strong indication that a significant part of the population, including Leave voters, don't support her Brexit plans. This has already led to an increasing number of voices calling for a second referendum. There are also assumptions that once the business implications of a hard Brexit become more and more obvious and the negotiations fail to deliver the results for the UK government had hoped for, internal resistance might further grow and compel the government to call for yet another election or step back from its plans. But at the time being, it is difficult to foresee the chances of a second referendum or any or another election being organized and whether these would indeed see a remain majority. To those Germans here tonight, there's a wonderful proverb in our language, die Hoffnung stirbt zuletzt, hope dies last. But we shouldn't be distracted by wishful thinking and focus our efforts at this stage on agreeing a deal that is least damaging for both sides and ensures our close cooperation and partnership in the future. Brexit isn't a win-win situation. Brexit isn't a win-lose situation or a lose-win situation. Brexit is just an awful lose-lose situation for all sides involved. Now, how are the current negotiations proceeding? I travelled from Brussels to London by train this afternoon. Until 2 o'clock, I joined my Chancellor, Angela Merkel, 
at the preparatory meeting of the EPP heads of government preparing the European Council, which would then start this afternoon, Brussels time, half past four. We discussed the issue of Brexit with Donald Tusk, with Jean-Claude Juncker, with the heads of government from Croatia, from Ireland, from Cyprus, from Romania. The Chancellor was also there. The only one missing was Mr. Rajoy, because he has a lot of other problems you're fully aware of. Now, we all agreed, once again, we didn't ask for this divorce. And we still all deeply regret that the UK is leaving. Personally, I still feel heartbroken. My wife once told me you should be heartbroken because of me, not because of Brexit, but okay. Uh, but I still feel heartbroken. But we didn't ask for this divorce. A narrow majority of the people in this country asked for this. But what we have to do now is get an orderly deal done. An orderly exit is key to our future partnership. We must therefore start by bringing legal certainty to existing rights and commitments. This cannot be left till the end of negotiations without putting an orderly withdrawal and a future relationship at risk. And this is why it is correct to focus first on the three essential topics, citizens' rights, border questions, and the UK's financial commitments, before discussing what our future relationship should be about. There are 3.2 million EU citizens in this country, while 1.2 million UK citizens live in the EU27, including my sister and me. As you all experienced, immigration was one of the most important and sensitive topics during the referendum campaign and thereafter. But if you look at the numbers, 916,000 Polish citizens in the UK, 332,000 Irish citizens, 233,000 Romanian citizens, 219,000 Portuguese citizens, and 192,000 Italian citizens, these countries are, of course, deeply concerned about the future rights of their citizens, especially with regard to work, health care, and pensions. Safeguarding the rights of these citizens is a priority for the EU and the negotiations, and especially for the European Parliament. And the European Parliament will have a final say in any withdrawal agreement which might be reached with the UK. Rights for workers, pensioners, students will have to be guaranteed on a reciprocal basis. And if this is not the case, it will be difficult getting any kind of withdrawal agreement through the European Parliament. Meanwhile, the UK government has acknowledged the right of EU citizens to live in the UK after Brexit, provided that they apply for registration in a simplified process. Yet there are still a number of details that haven't been solved yet, such as the right to bring in future family members, the recognition of professional qualifications or the future jurisdiction of the ECJ in matters relating to citizens' rights. The second point. A solution must be found regarding the border situation between Ireland and Northern Ireland. And this is not only an Irish-British question, this is a question for all EU27 member states. Now, I welcome that the EU and the UK both agree that the Good Friday Agreement must be protected and the common travel area maintained. And David Davis had repeatedly stated that there will be no return to a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland after Brexit. The question, however, is how this would be possible if the UK leaves both the customs union and the internal market.
I often hear British politicians talking about an invisible border. Well, we Germans know what it's like to have a very visible border right between our country. But I've often asked British colleagues, can you name me an example for an invisible customs border in the world, anywhere? You don't get such detailed answers after that. The only other solution would probably be a special agreement whereby Northern Ireland would remain in the customs union or internal market. But that doesn't seem likely either. I think the DUP might have a few problems with that. The Irish border question is not only an economic one, but it's also an economic one because it would be an external customs border of the whole European Union. And if the British weren't interested in organizing a border regime, the European Union might have to because, of course, this is an entry into our single market. I grew up going to a British school in West Berlin where my father was with the British military. And my childhood memories were British soldiers armed with guns in front of our school. And we were told as young boys and girls, be aware of young men with Irish accents anywhere near our school. These are my childhood memories, and that's why the Irish border question isn't only an economic one. Given the experience of the past, this question is perhaps even essentially about war or peace in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Third point. Before any withdrawal agreement is found, the question about outstanding payments by the EU UK to the EU must be settled. This is currently the most contentious issue in the negotiations. Let me be clear. We in Brussels are not talking about a Brexit bill. It's not about punishing the British. It's not about taking revenge. Chancellor Merkel was very clear a few days after the referendum in the German Parliament, there's no need to be nasty. Es gibt keinen Grund, garstig zu sein. I think the German word garstig is even nicer than nasty. We're not talking about a Brexit bill, but about legally binding financial commitments that the UK must honor on its withdrawal from the EU. As Michel Barnier has emphasized this week again, thousands of EU investment projects depend on the UK following suit on its financial obligations. In her speech in Florence, Prime Minister May declared that the UK will continue to contribute to the EU budget until 2020, when the current multi-annual framework of the EU budget ends. Yet this would still only account for about 25 to 30% of the financial obligations the EU has calculated. So far, there has been no firm acknowledgement that the UK will settle all of its obligations, including past commitments, as well as commitments that go beyond 2020. The Brexit clock is ticking. Given that the next elections of the European Parliament will take place probably in May or June 2019, and the UK will probably leave the EU on the 29th of March, midnight 2019, the negotiations have to be concluded at a technical level by October 2018. This leaves us now exactly with 12 months left to find an agreement. Unfortunately, so far, little progress has been achieved on the free withdrawal questions. This is why the European Parliament is of the opinion not to move on with the next stage of negotiations. 
Tonight, the European Council will formally decide if sufficient progress has been achieved to enter the next phase of the negotiations. We can be almost certain that the European Council will not give its green light. The draft, of the draft conclusions which Donald Tusk tabled this noon at 12 o'clock, and they're hardly ever really changed, um, says the following thing, quote, Building on this progress, the European Council calls for work to continue with a view to consolidating the convergence achieved and pursue negotiations in order to be able to move to the second phase of the negotiations as soon as possible. That sounds quite nice, but now... At its next session in December, the European Council will reassess the state of progress in the negotiations with a view to determining whether sufficient progress has been achieved. So no decision now, but no guarantee for a decision in December. It mainly depends what happens in the negotiation rounds which are upcoming. Now to avoid the above-mentioned cliff-edge Brexit scenario, we must start thinking of transitory agreements to allow for an orderly exit and a smooth transition from full membership to an association agreement. This is also in the EU's interest as it will give the member states additional time to establish the necessary post-Brexit administration and infrastructure and so help prevent chaos on our borders. The corresponding procedure laid down in Article 50, in the Article 50 agreement, is complex but in my view, feasible. The idea currently discussed in Brussels is that the UK would remain part of the single market during an agreed transition period which could, for example, end in 2020 when the multi-annual financial framework ends as well. But here again, it is important for the EU to ensure that all four fundamental freedoms, including, of course, the free movement of people, remain intact for the duration of any transitory agreement. Moreover, the EU would still have to accept and respect the EU's acquis communautaire, supervision rights of the EU Commission, and the jurisdiction of the ECJ. But the UK would lose its membership in EU institutions and its right to influence EU decisions. Hence, the UK would become an EU rule-taker instead of a rule maker, which is not necessarily easy to sell politically, I can imagine, but I believe still much better than a cliff-edge Brexit. I presume that some first internal steps and preparation of a possible transitory period will also be discussed at the European Council tonight. Let us keep in mind, even if a transitory period is decided, the UK will be a third country in its relations with the EU after Britain's withdrawal on the 30th of March 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, as I said before, Brexit is a lose-lose scenario and will inevitably provoke high costs on both sides. For the European Union, it is now about limiting the cost of Brexit and achieving the best possible outcome while protecting its principles and the unity of the internal market. And finally, what does Brexit mean for the EU and our future relations? Given my half-Scottish background, you won't be surprised that I was deeply affected by the outcome of the referendum. This referendum was indeed the most dramatic, although not fatal, blow to the European project as we know it. The looming reality of Brexit has become 
one of the EU's most pressing issues as one of the most internationally minded of all countries has decided to withdraw from the union that connected it with its nearest neighbors for 45 years. If I'm informed correctly, all four living former prime ministers of the UK have described Brexit as an historic mistake. Yet we have to respect this outcome of a democratic process, limit its damages, and where possible, turn into something positive. After Brexit, we will still need to find the ways and means of close partnership and cooperation, not least to ensure the rights and the security of our citizens. Given the common threats we face, close cooperation in matters of foreign and security policy as well as development aid will be of utmost importance for both sides, for the UK and the EU. In terms of trade and exchange, I believe we need a comprehensive agreement that goes beyond customs and market access. In particular, we should seek a mutual recognition principle and address further vital topics such as research mobility and the respect of EU standards regarding nuclear safety. In a world of unprecedented uncertainty, where the temptation to turn inward is unfortunately on the rise, the EU has to reaffirm again and again that unity is the best choice we can make. Therefore, it will not be one member state or the other trying to get the best deal for itself, but the EU is negotiating this as a block, and we will end the negotiations as a block. Standing together and acting together was also immediately decided at the Bratislava summit after the referendum in June 2016. And it is encouraging to see that the EU member states have indeed demonstrated remarkable unity in the aftermath of the British referendum. This makes me hopeful that Brexit will not end up dividing, but on the contrary, uniting our family of nations. Moreover, Britain's intention to leave the European House has sparked new discussions on the future of the European Union in a changing geopolitical environment such discussions and such reflections have been long overdue. While it's still too early to say what the EU's future will look like, several developments give reason for cautious optimism. In Germany, we say, Selbsterkenntnis ist der erste Weg zur Besserung. A fault confessed is half redressed. The ongoing reflections on the future of the EU are encouraging signs that our Europeans become finally aware that we need to, quote, take our fate into our own hands, unquote, as Angela Merkel put it. I'm thinking in particular of the Commission's White Paper series, the Rome Declaration, and last but not least, the numerous academic and citizen debates on the future of our union. What is more, these reflections in and about Europe are followed by action as evidenced by the recent establishment of a European Defence Fund, which brings us closer to a more coherent and effective European defence policy. We have achieved more in the last two years than in the 58 years before, despite, I know this not being very popular in the UK, but we no longer <coughs> need to ask you. Sometimes external pressure proves remarkably effective in creating internal cohesion and ability to act both Brexit and possibly less reliable American partners incite continental Europeans to move closer together. This tendency is further, of course, enhanced by an assertive Russia under Mr. Putin and an increasingly authoritarian Turkey under Mr. Erdogan. Faced with these pressures, Europeans should answer with a combination of unity and autonomy as well as openness to defend the liberal Western model. 
While we need to do more for our own security, we definitely won't turn inwards, but instead ensure cooperative relations with our global partners. Recent elections in Europe nourish further hope. Pro-European forces hold a majority in the member states. With the success of Emmanuel Macron's liberal pro-European movement, the French-German engine will hopefully be put en marche again and promote European integration in similar ways as we have seen this under Charles de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle and Conrad Adenauer or François Mitterrand and Helmut Kohl. The development of the EU remains open. However, amidst numerous crises, there is still reason to believe in the success of European integration. The EU is best advised to harness Brexit as a warning signal as well as opportunity to reform our European House and make it fit for the challenges of the future. I would like to thank you for listening to me. I would like to thank the Conrad Adenauer Foundation, especially Hans Blomeyer, for organizing this and friends from the LSE. And preparing for this speech tonight, I went through old documents on the topic of Britain and Europe, Brexit. I went through lots of speeches, good articles which have been written. And those of you who are Germans know, there aren't many moral authorities in our country. But it's always safe to quote our German president. Because he usually always says something which 85, 90% of the people think is okay. And that's why I love quoting German federal presidents, regardless if they're Christian Democrats, Social Democrats, or they don't belong to any party, or have never belonged to a political party. And I found a speech by our former president, Joachim Gauck, a padre, a pastor from East Germany, a fighter for civil rights, in 2013. And this is only four years ago, but I believe it's still such a wonderful quote. He said in 2013, Dear people of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, dear new citizens of Britain, we would like you to stay with us. We need your experience as the oldest parliamentary democracy. We value your traditions, but we also need your pragmatism and your courage. During the Second World War, your efforts helped to save our Europe, and it is also your Europe. Let us continue to engage in discussion on how to move towards the European Respublica, and perhaps even argue about it, for we will only be able to master future challenges if we work together. More Europe cannot mean a Europe without you." Unquote. I firmly believe that these true words are still valid today. So just in case life outside the EU isn't quite what British voters were looking for, the door to our European House will hopefully always remain open. As we say in German, die Hoffnung stirbt zuletzt, hope dies last. Thank you. Agata, I'd like you to uh, make your comments on the speech and some of your own thoughts as well about the issues. Thank you very much. Shall I, yeah, can I you stay can, here? You, you can do I what you prefer. like. Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much for this inspiring um, speech. Thank you very much to LSE and to CAS for inviting me. I must say that my job is quite difficult to comment on what you've just said because I um, mainly agree with most of the things that has been said. So um, I was thinking uh, how shall I organize my remarks not to repeat uh, most, of the, uh, most of the points uh, you made. Basically, the way what I will uh, take away from what you said um, is that it seems to me that both parties, both the UK and the EU27, want a deal. They want a withdrawal. Uh, they want an orderly withdrawal from the EU. Uh, some progress has been made, uh, but both parties are still far apart uh, to agree on the final uh, exit uh, withdrawal. And perhaps what I would like to focus on is basically to comment on how I see the current state of play and actually what are the reasons why those negotiations haven't been really moving uh, uh, at a pace that we would like them uh, to move. And finally, what, what are my sort of assumptions uh, or projections for, for a final deal? I think that what you stressed, that the clock is ticking, is, is quite important. I think we need to uh, quite often remind this to our British colleagues because indeed we are actually seven months uh, after Theresa May uh, triggered Article 50, five months um, after both the British and the EU team met for the first time and conducted the first negotiating round. And we, are st we still have only 12 months uh, to go uh, to complete the talks. And I think it's worth underlining that indeed the European Parliament will have a say on the, on the final deal, will have to ratify it, so it also needs some time to to process uh, the final text. And sadly, I must admit that only recently we've started actually seeing some progress and we've started seeing some contours, I would say, of the British negotiating position. And no doubt it seems to me, and I imagine that you will probably agree with this, is that uh, Theresa May's Florence speech gave a little bit of a more positive impetus in the talks which uh, uh, were at some point uh, really, really blocked. So she, she, she gave this more constructive tone, which hopefully will sort of continue. Uh, but it seems to me that even though we, uh, both parties uh, are close to finding an agreement on citizens' rights, uh, it seems that, uh, that the UK is actually willing to give a direct effect to the withdrawal agreement um, uh, so that the EU citizens living here in this country, like myself, would be able to point to the withdrawal agreement in front of the British courts, just in case we thought that our rights were violated, and the British courts would uh, uh, respect the agreement and actually refer to the ECJ in terms of any sort of uh, legal uh, legal doubts. Uh, if you look actually into the British legal system, that's already quite a lot because the, uh, Britain has dual legal system, which means that any international agreement needs to be actually incorporated into, uh, into British law uh, by uh, domestic legislation. But the EU has worried that if you incorporate something by uh, domestic legislation, you can actually dilute the rights which were uh, agreed in the, in the agreement. Then it seems to me also that uh, parties have made some progress on Northern Ireland issue, though it's still a very sensitive one. 
uh, there is already some progress on the common travel area, but indeed I fully uh, agree with you. Uh, it would be extremely difficult to avoid actually a hard border or any checks if the UK was eventually leaving the single market and the customs union. And I also agree that any indication of checks could actually fuel some tensions uh, in, in that region. I think that this is already a step forward that actually Britain has formally asked for transition period, uh, which would bridge the gap between the uh, uh, date of the uh, exit and future relationship that the UK would strike uh, with the EU that has been definitely applauded by business, both domestic and, and international. And finally, um, it's already an achievement, I would say, uh, that uh, the UK and Theresa May in her speech committed uh, and actually recognized that the UK will pay uh, will pay uh, or will honor its financial commitments. And indeed, she said, and you mentioned this in your intervention, she said that the UK does not want any net payers to top up after Britain's departure and net beneficiaries to, uh, to receive less. Well, that probably means that the UK uh, has committed to pay all the commitments arising from the MFF. But as we know, and this is the real bone of contention, I would say, there are also some other commitments that the UK entered into as a member of the European Union, which will fall far beyond the current MFF, which will, uh, which will uh, finish in uh, uh, 20. Uh, having said this, if you look into the sort of list of things that have been agreed, well, for uh, Michel Barnier and the EU negotiating team, that's um, not quite enough to recommend for the European leaders uh, today or tomorrow uh, to declare that sufficient progress um, has been made and to move to the uh, second uh, phase uh, uh, of the talks. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted actually to, to focus for a little while on the reasons why those negotiations haven't been moving at the pace which we would expect. Well, first of all, I think that partially the sort of uh, domestic cabinet in fighting is to blame. Of course, Theresa May's position has been weakened by the SNAP uh, uh, elections, and she really struggled to get her cabinet members behind her. And when I travel... Uh, across the European Union and talk to various counterparts, they're really worried that actually the leader they are talking to will not be able to actually sell the final deal at home. Um, uh, so that's definitely one, uh, one obstacle or something which has us prevented from, 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 going, uh, from making progress. Another one is, and actually I think that you are uh, uh, probably the, the first person to discuss this with, uh, is the kind of a lack of understanding, I would say, in, in, in Whitehall or in Downing Street, how the EU actually operates and what, what is the importance of, of the EU institutions and the sort of balance of powers between the EU institutions and member states in the uh, ongoing uh, negotiations. And it seems to me that the UK for quite a long time thought that, uh, could, uh, that it could bypass Michel Barnier and just go to individual leaders and, and strike a, a final deal. That was uh, a perfect example was when Theresa May decided to go with 
with her generous, I think she said generous and serious, or serious and generous offer on citizens' rights immediately to the European Council uh, leaders rather than actually put it on the table uh, uh, for the uh, negotiations between Barnier and Davis. And mm, it seems to me that there is still this kind of illusion that at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, Michel Barnier doesn't really matter. But I think the UK hasn't really understood that it is in the member states' interest that actually Barnier negotiates for them. And I think it is in, in also Germany's interest that Michel Barnier negotiates for them because the European Commission will try to make sure that there's some sort of common interest uh, prevails and the EU um, remains uh, united. And I think we, we've been repeating this quite, quite often uh, together with other continental colleagues, but I think it is, um, um, it is wrong to assume that you know, Brexit is something which keeps Angela Merkel awake at night. I think something which you refer to in, in, in the end, uh, I mean, I think that both uh, Emmanuel Macron and uh, um, Angela Merkel, well, they, they worry about the implications of Brexit, but they also have more important things to worry about, including uh, their domestic scene and the Eurozone, the Eurozone future. So that's the sort of second reason why those uh, discussions haven't moved uh, f forward. And then there is an issue where we might a little bit disagree on. <laughs> I think the sequencing of the talks uh, have actually, uh, sequencing has a little bit, uh, has of a blockage effect, I would say. I perfectly understand why the EU has decided um, uh, to, to go for sequencing, and sequencing for those who are not uh, fully into the current Brexit jargon. This means that uh, the EU has said that it, wants, uh, uh, it won't discuss the future relationship until sufficient progress has been made on Northern Ireland, on citizens' rights, and uh, financial commitments. And this is, I think, a real problem, because uh, the UK is saying that it cannot really put a final uh, offer, a final bill on the table until it knows what kind of a future relationship it will have with the EU, or at least how the negotiations concerning, uh, concerning the transition will look like. And of course the EU is saying we cannot really move forward without making sufficient progress. I understand the EU points of view, because it seems to me there is this kind of a concern that as long as well, the EU is broadly united on the exit terms, it seems to me that there is also full awareness that once the negotiations about the future relationship has kicked uh, off, the, the, the interest of the EU27 will start uh, somehow uh, diverging. Um, so that's, that's um, the kind of a chicken and egg problem which is difficult, which is difficult to overcome. But now the sort of final point I wanted to make. So the, the, the prospects, prospects of a deal. I actually think I think we'll probably also uh, uh, agree uh, on this. I think that the um, um, prospects or the chances of the UK crashing out of the EU without a deal have decreased, though I wouldn't put my money uh, on it. Um, and it seems to me that it is possible that the EU and the UK uh, might declare sufficient progress in, in December. The fact that the EU is already sort of allowing Michel Barnier to start preparing for 
uh, for uh, transition talks means that the mandate could be given quite quickly if there's sufficient progress or if Michel Barnier came in December and said, I think that uh, sufficient progress has been made and the European Council should give a green light. Just to remind you, we need a unanimous agreement of all member states for this, for this to happen. So I think it is likely. What is more problematic uh, uh, is actually the future relationship uh, between uh, the EU and, and the UK. And I think... Uh, and I basically think that th there, there are good news and bad news here, as always with Brexit. Uh, um, the good news is that, uh, and, and it's also what, what, what appeared uh, quite promising in Theresa uh, May's Florence speech, is that the UK is at least recognizing uh, that it's unconditional contribution to the EU security. So for the sake of the future relationship, that's already very promising because it seems that the UK is departing from, uh, from its uh, previous point of view uh, that it was willing to use its, uh, uh, its um, security capabilities as a bargaining chip, a chip. Another good news is that the UK seems to be also withdrawing from, the, from its previous threat, and particularly a threat that uh, Philip Hammond uh, made in the past, that it was uh, willing to undercut you know, environmental standards, regulatory standards to sort of create a greater um, uh, competitive advantage. And I think that's already hopefully uh, off the table, which creates the positive uh, atmosphere for the talks. The problem is, um, and, I've, and it was also quite uh, um, visible in, in your speech, the problem is that the UK still does not know what kind of a future relationship it wants to have, or at least the cabinet is uh, still divided on this issue. Uh, it seems to me that the UK uh, wants what it doesn't want, <laughs> so it doesn't really want a Norway option. Uh, perhaps uh, Canada is also not ambitious uh, enough, but it hasn't really set out its position. And if you actually look into the... Uh, British negotiating uh, position papers on the future relationship. It's still very much about sketching various options and actually telling the EU how much it will miss when the UK uh, has eventually left rather than putting forward certain uh, 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 certain ideas, and it seems to me this is this is uh, this is probably the, the biggest problems for the next months to come, and also for the discussions about transition, because at the end of the day, also to discuss transition, uh, which would be bridging the sort of past with the future, you need to know more or less where where you are heading, and at least from my discussions with 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 EU officials, uh, it seems that. Uh, the EU perfectly knows what it wants from the future relationship, uh, but it's not actually, uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily willing uh, to let, again, uh, the UK pick and choose. Um, there are various available models you, you can, uh, UK can pick, but not necessarily sort of half cake and, and, and eat it too. So I will probably uh, stop here because I see that John is looking already at me, uh, that I should, <laughs> that I should sum up. The good news there won't be any summary uh, because I think I've already, I've already said everything Excellent. I wanted. Excellent. Unless you have anything really pressing, I'd like to go to the audience. Thank you very much. So we've got stewards with microphones and I'll give you this commitment that uh, if you do... Sh 
short, fo focused questions, and we don't have many people putting up their hands. I might come back to you again for another short, focused question. But what I want to do is get as many people here as possible to be able to ask a question, and that means that people will have to be disciplined in the, the questions they ask and not make speeches. Is that okay? So if you put up your hands. Yes, Joseph. Um, hi, I'm Joseph from LSA Ideas, and we've been taking questions on Twitter tonight. So we have a question from Twitter from Constance. Um, what practical advice on how to deal with the EU would you give Mrs. May if you were her advisor? <laughs> Who's he asking? Well, definitely Mr. McAllister, yes. not me. <laughs> what advice I would give the Prime Minister? I would, have t I would have told her predecessor, don't hold a referendum, but... Um, <clears throat> um, by the way, the German constitution. And perhaps I would have told some of the British politicians, if you campaign in a referendum, at least try and stick to some of the facts. Um, I mean... Ah, oh, forget it. Um, 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 I think you say in your language um, something happens... Um, um, I just wanted to make one point that was wonderful what you said excellent but. no no <laughs> having said that um, just really one point there is still among some British politicians this feeling that in the end the Germans will sort it out <laughs> um, a bit like in 1815 <laughs> The Prussians come to the rescue. Uh, um, I just wanted to... And look, I'm a Hanoverian. Prussia is not my cup of tea. They annexed us in 1866. The greatest injustice of the 19th century. Um, the Kingdom of Hanover, which was linked to, the, to Great Britain for 123 years. Um, no... There is absolutely no appetite in Berlin to get dragged into this. The EU is negotiating this as a bloc, and this will exactly remain our position. We started the negotiations as a bloc. We will end the negotiations as a bloc. Um, and uh, life's too short uh, to get dragged into this. Um, I hopefully, if you know some of your... Members of the House of Commons, perhaps you can tell them. Um, <laughs> don't, don't wait for the Germans. Okay. So I'll come back to Joseph for more questions. But uh, let, let's go up a tier and then we'll come back down. So the gentleman there who's got his hand up, and there might be a couple in front of him who've also put their hands up. Yes, sir. Yeah, hello. Uh, I'm a project manager, a lot of experience, and I happen to be working on Brexit planning for a very large bank, international bank. Um, but I'm coming from my project management experience here. When I have a, bit, a big program of work where there's lots of different teams need to do lots of things, I look for opportunities to work things in parallel to go simultaneously. And yet the way that the EU has set up these negotiations is to do them serially, one after the other. And this in 
this, first of all, an insistence that they wouldn't talk at all about anything until Article 50 was served, was the first mistake. And, then, and now to insist on all these, these three particular, pr admittedly high-priority issues, but to insist that nothing can be discussed, the other projects cannot even start, is a delaying tactics. And I expect David to say this. He's a politician, right? He has, a, he has his, his viewpoint. Um, so I'm not really looking for his. I can understand the brinkmanship <laughs> and pushing things to the limit. So I'm more looking at Agatha to ask, you know, what's your perspective on the structure of the talks and the inability of, of either side to just get on with it so that the, the discussions can progress as quickly as possible? Okay, I'll take two more questions up there. This gentleman at the front and then Jill at the back there. Gentleman here. Uh, take the microphone, sir. Yeah. Uh, my name is Richard Hoy, and I just want to concur with what our lady speaker was saying. Um, there's a great deal of uncertainty about how the whole situation is operating in Brussels because many people have not read the treaties. But basically, under the treaties, the politicians might as well. Forget about the talks and the negotiations because we all know, if we read the treaties, that the Commission is in charge and it calls the shots, it drew up the negotiating guidelines and got the agreement of the rest to, to carry these out. It is actually prohibited under the treaties from taking instructions from a member state. It can be asked to do something, but we all know, if we read the treaties, that, that the Commission cannot take a mandate from anybody, it makes up its own mandate. So if its main interest is the continuation of the EU, which it's got to look after, then with Britain in, that would be ideal for it. And if Britain leaves, it will have to be punished in order to deter for others from doing the same. Can you uh, Well, we'll take that. that. We'll take one more question and then I'll give the panel chance to respond. Um, as, uh, as I expect will happen and as many th uh, people think uh, will happen, there, there will likely be no deal uh, made before uh, this time in, in 12 months. So um, what, is, uh, what do you think uh, will happen? Um, what deal uh, should the European Union write uh, to make uh, the UK sign when uh, the deadline is uh, like very, very close. Because it seems like no deal is going to be uh, ready by, by 12 months and the EU can just write what they want and, and sort of force uh, the UK to sign. Uh, otherwise, they'll have a cliff edge and that's probably not what they want. So what's the ideal plan for the EU? What do they want uh, if they have the upper end? What can, they, what can they sign with the UK, do you think? Okay, we'll, t we'll give the uh, panel a chance. And there's one at the back and another person, a few people over there, but we'll come down here as well. Um, so we'll give the panel a chance to choose. 
Uh, I think that the question concerning structure of the talks was directed at me, and in, in a way I think I've already shared my, my views on this. Uh, that's definitely not helping <laughs> the negotiations, having uh, from the British perspective, obviously. Uh, from the EU perspective, if I was an EU uh, leader, I would be very happy to go along with, with the sequencing because of the reasons we've, we've elaborated. Um, it is a little bit frustrating because I think experts, including uh, myself, um, uh, have repeatedly said that Article 50 does not really leave a lot of room for maneuver for the uh, future talks to begin. This is because a different legal basis will have to be used for that one. But I agree that there are some issues, including Northern Ireland really, which cannot be sorted out without talking uh, about the future. Uh, that's more or less the similar issue also for business which is concerned uh, and for its contingency planning. Um, so I basically see some prospects for the relaxation uh, of the EU's position. In fact, if you look closely into the EU's dynamics, uh, you would argue that the EU has already backtracked a bit from sequencing because, as a matter of fact, it used to say that we want, we will first discuss the withdrawal, then the future, and only as a kind of a third phase we will discuss the transition. Now I think there is a, this recognition in the EU that the UK does not really, it's not there yet. Has hasn't really come up with the, with the idea of the future relationship. So the EU is willing, uh, or actually has already started scoping uh, for the transition. But yes, I think this, this uh, as I called it, the uh, chicken and egg problem on finances, on financial commitments, is, is causing a, a blockage. Uh, shall I answer another one, which was on the European uh, Commission? I'm not sure whether this was a question or or a statement. I would just uh, uh, also rec recommend looking again into Article 50, which uh, creates the legal basis for unprecedented negotiations. Actually, it wasn't that certain that the Commission would be the negotiator. That wasn't very explicit in, in Article 50. And uh, it, these were member states uh, giving sort of guidelines for the negotiations to come, uh, actually EU leaders, and then uh, a council of ministers uh, preparing mandate for the commission. So um, uh, I would still say that member states are masters of the treaties uh, rather, than, rather than, com uh, than the commission, but obviously uh, I think that it has been in the EU's interest to keep the, uh, to keep the commission uh, on the front line. And I think that uh, the British government should recognize recognize that Barnier is actually one of their allies in this, in this game, because if this is true that he is actually getting ready for taking over from uh, uh, Mr. Juncker, I think it would be, it's also, no? <laughs> These are rumors, uh, Brussels rumors, then it's also in his interest actually to, uh, to strike a deal which would be good for both the EU and the UK. David, do you want to respond to any of that? Well, first of all, apologies for being a politician, but, uh, but, but, but you invited me. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, just a few remarks. The one thing is, I think if you compare the position of the UK and the EU, the UK is very keen to talk about a future relationship. 
whereas the EU first wants to get the divorce fixed. Perhaps the UK is a bit, perhaps the man. And you might be <laughs> the woman. That was German irony. Um, uh, now, on the sequencing, perhaps we're starting to see a slightly shifting approach of the EU27 because in the resolution the Council will adopt tonight, it will probably say at its next session in December, the European Council will reassess the state of progress in the negotiations with a view to determining whether sufficient progress has been achieved, and now this is new, and if so, adopt additional guidelines in relation to the framework for the future relationship and on possible transitional arrangements which are in the interest of the Union and live up to the conditions and core principles of the guidelines of 29th of April 2017. In order to be fully ready for such a scenario, the European Council invites the Council together with the Union negotiator to start internal preparatory discussions. So here I think you now see that even though we haven't finished the first phase, we are already preparing for the beginning of the second phase. And of course, in the end, in accordance with the principle that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, we might see some negotiations going in parallel. Now, I wasn't quite sure what you meant that the Commission can do what it wants. I wouldn't be very fond of that. Uh, the Commission is negotiating under a framework, the framework of the guidelines which the 27 member states adopted. And the Commission can't do what it wants because in the end, whatever the member states and the Commission present, it will need the approval of a qualified majority in the European Parliament. Don't underestimate the importance of the European Parliament uh, in this negotiation uh, process. Now, what would be the best outcome? The best outcome would be that in December we see sufficient progress and then we can start negotiating our future relationship Let's agree on a transitory period of two or three years. And then my solution would be a comprehensive free trade agreement between the EU and the UK plus X, a big X, a partnership on security, on defense, on many other topics which I tried to describe in my speech. In the end... It won't be a Norwegian model. It won't be a Swiss model. It won't be a Turkish model. It won't be any other model, Macedonian model, Albanian model. We're talking to the British. In the end, it must be a British model, something unique. But I think from all the models we have, probably the closest we would get is the existing partnership agreement with Ukraine. Absolutely. And UK and Ukraine are quite close in the alphabet. I was surprised myself. I, I was surprised myself, but if you, if you look through all the points we have got done with Ukraine, it gets quite near what presumably... But you cannot sell it like this. In the I world. know. <laughs> but I'm here. I'm not, I'm not speaking to a conservative conference. I'm speaking at the LSC. I'm just... Look, people... 
<laughs> you can criticize me as much as you want. If the Daily Express is here, please shoot me. I don't care, <laughs> because I, I'm a German politician. I'm just trying to tell you what the reality is. And here's somebody who's trying to make the best out of it, despite him being a politician. Uh, and um, there was one other point I wanted to make, but now I've forgotten. So why don't we ask the next Agata, you just wanted to come Yeah, in I just wanted to come back for a second. And I'm really glad you mentioned Ukraine, because I remember having a conversation with some of my colleagues some time ago when they were looking into various models. And Canada was always the one which was popping up. And, and, and Norway, of course, is a sort of uh, member, you know, uh, single, mar single market membership. And then I told them, look into Ukraine, because it's very complex comprehensive and apart from the economic model it also has this political security. and security component it also actually has some services now uh, financial services of course the uh, the British uh, uh, financial services cannot be compared with the with the Ukrainian ones but I, I would urge people actually to look into that template perhaps also worth looking into dispute resolution mechanism but I again I'm afraid that uh, it cannot be sold as a Ukrainian <laughs> association agreement uh, for also for several reasons, but one of them being um, Ukraine has this European aspiration. We would all love the UK to at some point reconsider its decision and perhaps uh, 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 come back on the accession path, but I think we, we are not there yet. And I, if I may just to, because this is my uh, institution's geekiness uh, coming, I'll of me. I just wanted to come back to what we've said about the Commission negotiating, and I fully agree with you. These are member states which actually created the, 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 the guidelines and enhanced framework uh, uh, whereby the, the Commission navigates. But actually, if you look how the process was constructed, it's, uh, it's a masterpiece, basically, because the European Commission when, uh, after every single negotiating round comes back actually to member states, uh, to the working group, reports back, uh, uh, discusses any sort of outstanding questions uh, and also gets feedback before it goes into the negotiating room again. And it does exactly the same with the European Parliament, with its Brexit steering group. You might wonder why Michel Barnier is repeating really often actually that uh, uh, I was sort of underlining the Euro European Parliament's role because at the end of the day the European Parliament will, will have to accept it. This is why Barnier wants to keep actually the Parliament engaged to make sure that at the end of the day uh, any, none of the elements of the agreement are not unpicked. Okay, let's try some people down here on this. Yes sir, you, you had your hand up earlier, yes. Um, you speak a lot about the border um, and the Irish border. Um, I grew up nine miles from that border. And um, there's a border also along Eastern Europe from going from Finland, which borders Russia, Poland, borders Ukraine, all the way down to um, Greece. And I doubt very much if them borders are, pr are pretty well secure, because uh, on both sides you have members and non-members. Um, that border in Ireland has caused many problems in the past, and we're not going back to an Irish border. People on both sides of that border today travel freely back and forth, and they don't want a border in Ireland. So you said, sir, Prussia was not your cup of tea. In Ireland, 
a border is not our cup of tea. So Brussels need to understand that. Thank you. I think they do understand that. I think that's a, a very important point. It's a very, very important point, but what's, what's happened in Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement, and I think that's where it got taken, yes. John, yep. there is also Jill. Yep, yep. To... okay. Uh, yes, thank you. I'm a student here at uh, LSE and I have a question for Mr. McAllister. You mentioned that uh, there'll be general European Parliament elections in May and that the UK is sought to leave in March. Uh, my question is regarding British MEPs. Uh, I know there are probably talks in the European Parliament about this, but how will their seats be redistributed? Will Good they question. just be taken off or redistributed to other countries? Thank you. Uh, Jill. Yeah, hi, I'm Jill Russell from the Institute for Government, another geeky organization. Um, two quick questions. One, is there any sort of limitation except for agreement on the length of transition? You mentioned, first of all, something linking it to the MFF, but then said two to three years. I just want to know whether that's just for negotiation or there's some complexity on that. But a slightly different question. You mentioned the Ukraine agreement, which is very, very interesting, but obviously... They're diff going in different directions. The Ukraine agreement's about convergence. This is about gradual divergence. I just wondered whether there was thinking within uh, the 27 and the Commission about something Michel Barnier said about the mechanisms to manage divergence and what that might look like so we could have something that was the same sort of dynamic, evolving agreement as Ukraine but rather than notify and inform that we were converging and get access, we could notify an intention to diverge and perhaps lose some access if that was our choice. Can we take two more questions? That gentleman there. And that gentleman has got his hand up there. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, we'll take this one first and then yourself. Hello. Thank you very much for your thought-provoking comments. Um, my name is Oliver Hardman and I'm from Dr. Challenger's Grammar School, a school in a country which was great in the past, will continue to be great, um, even despite we no longer embrace the European project. I think we will always embrace Europe and the values it holds very strongly. So my question today is, given the UK will no longer contribute to the EU budget, how will Germany and France accommodate this loss of contribution in the future to make sure the periphery countries continue to receive the best benefits of the EU as well as the northern countries? Thank you. Sir. Hello. Um, similar question to what's just been posed there. So if we assume that, not that it'll be easy, but if we assume that the Irish question is, is sorted out satisfactorily, if we assume that the, that the financial reparations from Britain to the EU is sorted out satisfactorily, um, in terms of um, your comment, David, earlier on, that um, Germany uh, does not want to get involved, it wants to keep as far as possible, uh, uh, as far as possible out of this picture, isn't it also natural, however, um, given that Britain is as I understand, um, uh, the biggest export market um, for Germany in the EU, that inevitably Germany will have to get involved and will get increasingly involved over the course of the next year. Thank you. Uh, panel can answer those. We've got about eight minutes left of our time here. Okay. So, so, I'll be very brief. On Ireland, uh, I apologise, perhaps if this was a misunderstanding, I am very much in favour of avoiding any kind of hard border. And in the guidelines of the Council, it says, in view of the unique circumstances on the island of Ireland, flexible and imaginative solutions will be required, including with the aim of avoiding a hard border while respecting the integrity of the Union legal order. 
That's exactly, and believe me, as a German, it's great to get rid of borders. And it's, it, it would be a nightmare to see any kind of new hard border or any kind of a border be re-established between the Republic and Northern Ireland. Transitory period, how long? Well, it can't last forever. Um, I don't know what, in the end, the agreement will be. Two years, three years, perhaps even more. But since the UK is so desperate to leave the single market, I think it will probably be difficult to explain to British voters why the transitory period would be so long. And on the other hand, we have to make clear that you can't leave the European Union and still have all the benefits, at least not for a longer period of time. I'm so sorry I mentioned Ukraine. It wasn't in my speech. Uh, and look, I, I, I wasn't saying that the UK should go the Ukrainian model. I was referring to an, a great article um, written by uh, Andrew Duff, mm -hmm. who was comparing the different models. And Andrew Duff is a liberal. I thought I could quote a liberal in London uh, at the LSE. And he said, from all the models that exist, it could go in that direction. But of course, Ukraine and the UK are different. Ukraine is on its way towards the EU. You're trying to sail away uh, from the European Union. But this is all uncharted territory. We have never, ever been forced to negotiate some kind of deal with a country which was so closely interlinked with us. And then finally, the redistribution of British seats. Donald Tusk announced today that he will probably ask for an additional European Council meeting in February 2018, where he wants to discuss some of the questions around the next European elections in May 2019. The Spitzenkandidaten process, the question of the date of the election, I mean, this has to be organized at some stage, and also the question of the redistribution of seats. This is being discussed in the European Parliament, in the Constitutional Committee, with very, very different views between the political groups and between the members. Personally, I am of the opinion the 73 seats which are currently held by British MEPs shouldn't be redistributed at all because perhaps at the next European elections in 2024, we might be voting, uh, British uh, MEPs might be elected again, but we could also use these 73 seats as a reserve for other countries because while your great country is leaving the EU, countries like Montenegro and Serbia aren't ready yet, but if they continue their reform process at this pace, this might be a question for 2024 that we will have Member State 28 Montenegro and Member State 29 Serbia. If we redistribute the seats, all other countries would benefit apart from one because the maximum cap of MEPs is 96 and Germany has 96. So you can imagine it's not that courageous for a German MEP to say we shouldn't redistribute the seats. 
You can ask the last question, young lady at the front. Um, so you said at the end of your speech that the European Union would always have its doors open to the UK. Um, so at the moment, the relationship we have with the EU means that we have uh, slightly more power in making and following laws than other countries. Um, if we rejoined the EU after a period of having left, would we be able to go back to that exact relationship or would our power be permanent? <laughs> Very good question. Okay, yes. <laughs> you know, in, in your language, you talk about cherry picking. Um, uh, in German, it's called Rosinenpicken. We pick raisins, not cherries, but we mean the same. Uh, look, we've had 40 years of cherry picking. Uh, we enjoy cherry picking, not always. Um, of course, a, a sovereign state in Europe which shares our values and goes through a complex negotiation process can join the European Union. And of course, a UK outside the EU could apply the EU membership. It would probably have a fast track. However, once you leave, all the exceptions you had are gone. And if you join, you have to fulfill the requirements of the whole acquis communautaire. And by the way, this includes the promise that at some stage you would have to accept our joint currency. It doesn't mean you have to introduce the joint currency once you join the EU, but Jean-Claude Juncker correctly pointed out, apart from the UK, and in some regards Denmark, the euro is the currency of the European Union. The euro is not only the currency of the eurozone, that's why I'm strongly in favor of not creating new institutions, a Eurozone parliament, a Eurozone government, all these fantastic plans and some of uh, heads of some people in Paris. No, we don't need additional institutions. We have them. These are the European Parliament for the democratic control, and these are the European Commission. I would, for, for instance, suggest that a vice president of the European Commission, who is the commissioner for economic affairs, should also be the chair of the Eurozone group. But this is um, going too far now. So perhaps that's from my side. Uh, but, you know, before applying for EU membership, why didn't you just stay a member uh, 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 of our club? Just one final remark, because... I'm considered as being very pro-British in Germany. I'm criticized for being far too soft on the British, whereas in the British media, I'm always attacked for being too strict. Germany will miss the British voice in Brussels. This country has always been the driving force for the single market, for making the European Union more competitive, for making the European Union less bureaucratic. We will miss the British voice even more than our French friends. You bet. But what I don't understand is this country, which more or less was the inventor and the motor of the single market, why is this country, which created the single market, so obsessed not only to leave the European Union, but also to leave the single market? And why are they asking to have as many, as the closest linkage possible to the single market, 
But if the single market is such a good thing, why don't you at least remain in the single market, for God's sake? This is, this is something which continental Europeans have difficulties to understand. And we try. We try every day to understand. But now I'm actually starting to become emotional because I, you know, I, I, I just don't understand this. And one more word. Sorry. The European Court of Justice... Yeah, take back control. Could somebody here in the audience, perhaps later on outside, tell me one court decision of the ECJ which was a, for a, which was a disadvantage for this great country? Name me one, but please name me a decision of the ECJ, not the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Because I remember speaking to a backbencher and he's saying, Name me a decision, and he named me a decision, and I said, well, that was the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. He says, well, David, come on. Now, don't get too much into the details. You know exactly these... <laughs> you know, and, you know, this is which we And, you know, for 43 years, the UK had difficulties understanding how the European institutions operate. And now, where they're leaving, they are starting to understand... Now, because we now have to understand how the Council, the Commission, the Parliament, all these horrible institutions who are only trying to oppress the British people, how we operate. I wish a British Prime Minister would have come to the European Parliament way before the referendum. And I think you would have heard from colleagues from all the other 27 states, whatever you do, please stay with us. We're a family. And this country... It's not a sailing boat. It's an island. You can't sail away. You will always be very close to the continental Europeans. And whatever you have said in the last years, and not everything was always very nice, I think most European politicians, including at least me, we will always love and adore this great country and its great people. That's why we're so sad to see you go. Sorry. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much for spending one and a half hours here of your time. On behalf of the LSE Ideas, uh, um, it was a very good uh, debate. I'd like to uh, thank our, 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 um, our partners, Conrad Aldena, for sponsoring this debate and the workshop. I'd like to thank Agatha for her very incisive comments. And last but not least, I'd like to thank David McAllister for a very impassioned plea with a lot of content, with a lot of um, force. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for spending time over here with us. It's very interesting, as we say in Britain, to hear from the horse's mouth what you really believe and not what is written in the papers of what you believe. Thank you very much.